Welcome back to the Bio Audio Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about invasive species and how their genomic and genetic structure responds to the process of invasion. Would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Dr. Thais Bernos. I'm currently a postdoc for a project that's called Fishes. So I live up north and I essentially collaborate with um, a lot of indigenous partners here and we use the best kind of evidence to inform local fishery management. So I bring the genomic sides and they bring the local traditional knowledge that something that has been building over thousands of generations. Um, my research interests are very broad. Typically, I lead research projects that have some kind of theoretical underpinning, but that have applied ramifications. So I like my work to benefit nature and the people who depend on it. And so very often I use genomics or genetic theories as a tool to gain new insights on natural systems, but also to improve management, typically for fish species. So today we're going to talk about invasive species, but let's start this off more simply. What is an invasive species? Why does something get classified as invasive? So I actually like this question because... Um, it sounds like a very simple question, but it actually is not. You know, it's a very hot topic in invasion biology. People don't necessarily agree on how to define an invasive species. And typically the definition that you have, they put different amounts of emphasis on where the species is from, the impact it has and its capacity to spread. And so personally, the definition I like is an invasive species is an organism that's not native to the specific region, but has the capacity to proliferate very quickly and has negative impacts in the non-native region. And so when you think about it, I like this definition because it includes species, for example, that were introduced deliberately by humans. So you can think about a fish introduced for aquaculture purpose or any kind of species uh, introduced for the purpose of biocontrol. But it can also be extended to account for other problematic species that, for example, would be naturally expanding their range as a result of climate change. So you can think about ticks, for example. They're a kind of invasive species, but they're naturally expanding their range. Now, I get why we might like ticks expanding their range, but what's the real concern with invasive species? Why are they such a topic of concern and a whole study in biology in themselves? So for from a management standpoint, they are a concern because they can have a range of impacts in the non-native region. So, for example, they can degrade habitat quality, they can drive local species to extinction by, for example, outcompeting them, or they can prey on them. Uh, they can also have an impact on human society. So they can introduce pathogens that are bad for humans. They can reduce crop productivity, which would also raise the cost of food. And also, you have to keep in mind that once invasive species become a problem, managing them is extremely, extremely costly. So, for example, in the United States in 2020, it costs more than $25 billion in a single year to manage invasive species. And what differentiates an invasive species from a non-native species that may just be expanding? Yeah, so I think if you want invasive species, you would have to have this impact in it, um, that it has negative impacts, essentially. So is a non-native just something in the wrong environment, but not destructive? Lots of things get accidentally moved or translocated, but most don't actually get established and become a really growing population. Yes, but, you know, when I said it's a little bit of a hotly debated topic, some people would still say, you know, as long as this species is non-native, it doesn't depend if it has any impact, it's an invasive species. Very few of them will make it. But, you know, for example, uh, if you talk to some people who are very have very strong opinions about invasive species. They will tell you, even if you have a tiny population that is barely surviving, they're still invasive, even though they're not really making it because they're not from here. But I like having this negative impact and this ability to proliferate uh, built in there. Is there any way of predicting which translocations will lead to invasion? Are there signatures of invasive potential? 
I'd say, you know, it's a whole field of research trying to predict what will make those invasive species successful, because like you said, there are really few of them that actually are able to establish and proliferate. Um, I'd say from a genetic standpoint, actually, the success of invasive species in those new areas is actually often considered paradoxical. Paradoxical. So actually what survives is not what you predict. What do you mean by that? And that's because when you think about invasive species, typically it starts off with a small number of individuals that were in the source population that are transported to the non-native region. And because it's a small number of individuals, they typically only have a small number of the alleles that were present back in the native range. And so uh, that's what we call the founder events. And uh, when they start in this new non-native range, we expect them to have a very small population with reduced genetic variation. So typically those characteristics are not something that is meant to do well in your environment because they might suffer from the consequences of inbreeding because they don't have a lot of mates to choose from. They can also suffer from the accumulation of deleterious mutation and uh, from the consequences of drifts, which is essentially the erosion of genetic diversity when you exist at small population sizes. Ah, I see. So you have this small founding population and it's subject to founder events. And as a consequence, it has a small number of alleles. And because of that, it would be prone to drift. And if you have a small number of potential mates, you may have a problem associated with inbreeding. And this is not the situation where we would typically predict a high level of fitness and success. And so paradoxically, it's odd that they do so well and that invasive species can be so successful. We might not predict that. Um, and the other thing as well is when you have those small populations with reduced genetic variation, you're also not expecting them to have a very high adaptive potential. Um, but for invasive species, what's actually interesting is that a lot of them are doing very well and a lot of them have been documented to rapidly evolve in new ranges. And so we think that this could be to two different, due to two different mechanisms. The first one is either they have genetic variation that they can um, use essentially when they arrive in that new, new native range and they can evolve from. And the other one is pre-adaptation. So in the native range, they might have been pre-adapted to an environment and by chance, they transport it to an environment that has similar environmental conditions. So, for example, you can think about it happening between two urban spaces. Uh, typically, tra human transportation hubs are between urban spaces. So they might encounter conditions that they're already pre-adapted to in the native range. Uh, I see. So, so maybe the successful ones are ones with a high degree of genetic variation already. Or in the case of human translocations, we're really moving them from one range to a very similar one, like moving a muscle attached to my boat from one lake to another. It's not such a strange new setting. So they're already well adapted to similar environments and the required adaptations are minor. We tend to think of evolution as slow, but how quickly can this local adaptation and invasion happen? It can adapt fairly quickly. So, for example, there are some examples of rapid evolutionary changes that have happened in as little as 20 generations. Um, so that's why we think because it happens so quickly, typically we don't think of it happening from a new mutation that would have uh, arised in that new range. Uh, rather, they're typically caused by alleles that already exist in the native range. Uh, but one thing that's interesting is because the environmental conditions are very different because between the native and the non-native range, you can, some of the alleles might have been beneficial in the native range already, but some of those alleles might have been neutral or even deleterious in the native range. But in that new range, they actually have a beneficial effect for that species. Uh, and so one mechanism that we think could also facilitate those very rapid evolutionary changes is very strong, intense selection that would uh, essentially cause that very rapid increase in frequency of that beneficial allele. So you work with something called tench fish. I used to work with fish a long time ago, but I admit I've never heard of a tench fish. What are they? Can you describe them for us? 
<laughs> well, it's a, it's kind of an interesting looking fish. It has this olive color, those beautiful small red eyes. It's very slimy. It's a cyprinid fish. Uh, the native range is very wide across most of Eurasia, so you can find it in France where it's native, for example. You can also find it in Russia. You can find it in Turkey and so on. So it has a very, very broad range. Um, I think it's a fish that can be characterized by two main things. The first one is that uh, it has a very high fecundity, so it can reproduce more than one time per year. The females can produce up to 200,000 eggs. It's a lot. Uh, so it has the ability to potentially grow to large population sizes if it's uh, in a suitable environment. The second one is that it's a very, very sturdy fish. So, for example, it can tolerate a wide range of temperatures. And in fact, it has even been known to survive outside of the water for a couple of hours. It has like an extra skin membrane here. It can seal its gills. Um, and so for these reasons, that you can, as you can imagine, because also it's a popular table fish in parts of Europe, especially Eastern Europe, has been moved around Europe since the Middle Age. And uh, so it has a very complicated evolutionary uh, history in Europe with a lot of admixture between two ancestral genetic lineages that are, uh, one of them is found in Western Europe, the other one in Eastern Europe. Uh, so that's kind of like it's been moved around in the Middle Age. And then 200 to 300 years ago, there was a new wave of introduction of tench all around the world where it became introduced to very distant locations. So, for example, Australia, New Zealand, the United States. And uh, this new wave of introduction it was essentially driven by settlers who uh, brought the fish with them because they kind of missed the fish they used to catch back home. So this is food, and we as humans like to bring food we like to new areas when we move. So we have repeated introductions all around the world, which are deliberate, because we want our food to be something we recognize. So this is a case of invasion as a sort of cultural invasion. Yeah, most of, yeah, yeah, yeah. all of those were deliberate introduction, typically for aquaculture purposes. For this work, I talked a lot with people from all around the world, because we look for samples from all around the world. And, uh, you know, I grew up in France. People don't eat tench in France at all and here people would not eat tench either there's a little bit of a not a fashion of eating fish but you know there are like some cultural preferences so they don't eat it in those countries but if you go to eastern europe it's a very popular fish for christmas so i went to czech republic to work with some colleagues and you know they were telling me you know for christmas here you buy your tench you go to the city market and there is a pool there with live tench and people buy them live and bring them home and put them in their bathtub and then they have it for christmas with their family so very popular fish parts of the world so this fish sounds like something that's going to do well as an invasive. It's got really high tolerance to environmental variation and extremely high reproductive output, so high fecundity. Um, when they get there, they can reproduce fast. And this is all being aided by humans who are actually encouraging the invasion so they can eat them. What has happened then within Canada? How has demographics and dispersal shaped their genetic structure? So... For the Canadian tench, we've looked at it at different levels. So first of all, we're interested at kind of like the Canadian scale. So for example, we know that there are three different locations where tench can be found in Canada. One of them is in BC. Tench were also found in Orangeville in Ontario, and then they are all over the St. Lawrence, all the way to Lake Champlain in the US. And so the first thing that we did is we wanted to see if there were any genetic differences between those three different locations. And so we found that those were three genetically distinct populations, meaning that they're characterized by different ideal frequencies. Um, and we're able to link them to different populations back in the native range. And so essentially what we know is that Tench was likely introduced at least three times in Canada, which was interesting because the Orangeville population, for example, we uh, didn't know anything about it. They were just found by management. Nobody knows who put them there, how long they were there for. We just know that they've been there for multiple generations. Uh, we've also done a lot of work on the specific Quebec population. And that one, we focused on it a lot because it's 
of particular management concern because it's spreading relatively quickly towards the Great Lakes, which are already an invasive species hotspot. And so what's interesting about this population is what we knew, the documented introduction was that there was one farmer about 30 years ago, which in, with, who brought to Canada about 30 fish in a cooler from Germany. And so we know that because it was actually cleared by customs at the airport in Montreal, and we have literally a record of that conversation. And so he imported them from Germany. His goal was that he wanted to commercialize them, but it didn't really work out. People here don't really want to eat tench. They like salmon better in Canada, you know? And so the rest is kind of history. At some point, he drained the pond. Some individuals ended up in the Richelieu River. And you can, you know, fast forward 30 years. They're now all the way from Lake Champlain to Quebec City. And they've even been caught in Lake Ontario in 2017. And so with the genetic data, we're able to confirm that this population was actually the result of a single introduction event, which was interesting because you also have a lot of successful invasive population uh, that are introduced more than once, but those successive introductions are not necessarily documented. So in the case of Tench, we don't think that was the case. We think it's those third individuals that started the population. So an entire population in Quebec that comes from about 30 individuals that were accidentally introduced in a single event and are now threatening the Great Lakes. And in the space of our lifetime, they have spread through about 500 kilometers of river. Is that a lot? So for invasive species, typically they remain at relatively small population size localized for relatively Sometimes it can be a long period of time. That happened for 10, so the first 10, 15 years were relatively slow. It was essentially kind of focused on the Richelieu River. And then in the beginning of 2000s, it started to invade Lake Champlain. That went really quickly. And same thing in the St. Lawrence. So it's kind of an accelerating invasion. And um, we think that's also because, well, the density is increasing, but also because 10 is capable of long distance dispersal. So. And if this is a relatively new invasion, then what do we know about their population genetic structure and allelic diversity? So because this population went through a founder event, that uh, the effective population size still remains pretty small, but the genetic diversity is actually pretty high for that species. So for example, it's comparable to a lot of the native species that you would see in the St. Lawrence. And we think that's because the population was reduced in size, but it was able to grow to relatively large sizes relatively quickly after that. It didn't remain at small population size. And because of that, we think that this rapid growth in number of individuals help it buffer against the loss of genetic variation that we'd expect from drift, for example. You've used the term effective population size there. What's the difference between a population size and an effective population size? It's essentially the effective population size relates to the breeding behavior of your species and how many of the individuals get to reproduce. So, for example, if you think of a species that where you have, you know, 100 individuals that are males and 100 females, but you have a mating system that's such that you only have one male's mating, the effective size of that population will be much smaller than the number of individuals that you have because they don't get to reproduce and pass on their genes. So the effect of drifts in that population is much higher than you would expect if you only look at the number of individuals. Okay, so if you have a population where only a few individuals breed, most don't really count as part of the breeding population, and so the effective size is smaller than the total number of individuals. I guess if we were thinking of a human example, young kids and grandparents, they aren't part of the effective population. The number of potential parents is really much smaller than the total number of individuals. And since drift is stronger in small populations, if you have a small effective population size, drift is stronger than you might expect by looking at the total population. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's also something that's influenced by that kind of thing, like the age structure. By How is understanding the population structure informing our management of tench as an invasive species? So one of the things that we did uh, for the tench work is that we were able to have an indirect estimate of dispersal. And so dispersal is very important to managing an invasive species. And so what we showed there is because it has this very high potential to spread over very long distances, um, one of the bad news for management is that eradicating the species will be challenging because to keep an area free of tension, you have to keep eradicating the species in a very large radius to prevent it from recolonizing the area that you're trying to keep free of tension. And so essentially what we said is that eradic eradicating tension is likely not feasible at you know, a relatively large scale. So for example, a watershed and possibly a local scale as well. Uh, so we recommended that management should instead focus on reducing abundance in priority areas. Uh, and we also recommended that the invasion front should be monitored using a mix of techniques. And in particular, we recommended the use of environmental DNA because it can be used to detect a species uh, that still present at low abundance, which uh, are notoriously very difficult to, to essentially sample when they're present at low abundance because your uh, chances of capturing it are actually quite low. Managing invasive species is a little bit of a wicked problem because uh, anything that you're trying to do typically has an impact on other things. So, for example, if you're trying to, you know, block um, dispersal, it will impact other native species and it will impact boat traffic. And uh, so, yeah, it's pretty difficult to actually trigger management action for invasive species. You've just mentioned environmental or eDNA as a technique, which is something I work on quite a bit. But for the record, what does this mean to use eDNA? So eDNA, essentially, when you have an organism in water, it's shedding DNA in its environment uh, by losing skin cells, uh, when it pees, when it just crabs itself on things. And all that DNA ends up in the water, and you can sample the water, and then you can find traces of that DNA. And so you can link that to the species, and so you can say, you know, in that water body, we had a tench. So essentially, it cuts down the costs, the effort that would be necessary to find that species very often. So you have three different populations in Canada, and you've been telling us about the one in Quebec, where you know its exact history. Can you tell anything about the other two populations and when they were introduced? Uh, we haven't looked at it specifically. The orange I didn't look at it, um, but it was found in 2000, and you had a, few, a couple of generations in there. So we think it was introduced, I think, around 2005. And then the one in BC, there are records of its introduction. I believe it was in the 1800. It's a population that came from the Washington River in the US. Okay, so two are very recent invasions, but one is a fairly ancient invasion, you know, 150 years ago. What has its impact been? We don't know much about it in uh, Canada. It hasn't really been looked at in terms of the impact, but uh, tench has been known to degrade the quality of the water. So it can make the water a little bit murkier. It can also outcompete some native cyprinids by preying on its eggs. And uh, one of the problems with tench is it also has a lot of pathogens and parasites that it can introduce and those can be an issue for native species. Is there any chance of just starting a commercial market to try and reduce the population size through fishing, you know, eat the invasive species rather than the native species? Is that a sort of potential management strategy? That's a, that's a really good question. So right now they're actually thinking of doing that in uh, some lakes that are next to Montreal. But it's, again, one of those topics that um, some people are very strongly opposed to creating a market because then it creates, it essentially gives that fish a value and then people can start managing it to continue benefiting from that species financially so they can translocate it to new ponds or new lakes. Now they're actually considering giving a few licenses to fishers for to open a market for it, but uh, there is no 
big market for 10 ships. I see. So you could create a market to reduce the population, but then you'd encourage people to create new populations and possibly exacerbate the problem they've already got. I'm very interested that you mentioned in your introduction that you work with indigenous peoples on this project. How has this knowledge sharing benefited your work? Right now, I mean, Mississippi has been really facilitated by that because we co-create. So essentially every step of the research project, we talk about it, we define the research questions, we talk about the approach. And the idea is to do research that's actionable by people here. So there's a lot of work that has been done here already by my team on Lectra genomics. Lectra is um, a species here that's very important for food security. People have been harvesting it for thousands of years. And so in the project, what I'm trying to do is I'm developing indicators that can be used by management, kind of the cultural here to monitor not only biological diversity for lake trout, but also aspects of fishing for lake trout. And uh, yeah, so right now we've developed a few indicators. Uh, we are doing a lot of focus groups in a couple of weeks with elders to talk about it more and to understand more some aspects that we didn't understand yet. I always ask my guests how they became interested in this kind of work. So how did you become a fish biologist and an invasive species specialist? Um, I'd say my career path has been very diverse because essentially I've taken opportunities to experiment and roll out things I didn't like and develop strong transferable skills. And so, for example, I did my master's in genetics um, because I wanted to learn about genetics and I had never worked with fish, but I thought fish could be really cool because human society is really dependent on fish and I already had this interest in doing work that's important for human societies. Uh, after this master's in conservation genetics, working in Lectra in Newfoundland, I wanted to step out of academia and I worked for NGOs in Madagascar. It was a very different project. I worked uh, with fishers. They wanted to develop this to manage their fisheries. It was something that was really a problem over there because the fisheries were declining and it's really what people relied on for their subsistence. Uh, so that, that work did not involve genetics at all. I really, really liked it, but um, I also felt like I needed to do a PhD to actually have a better research position. So I came back to Canada. I did my PhD in invasive species genetics. I really like collaborating. I think it really makes your research richer to collaborate with people who do not do genetics. So when I was doing my PhD, I was collaborating a lot with people who manage invasive species, so Department of Fisheries Notion, Ministère de la Forêt de la Parc de Parc et des Faunes in Quebec. Um, and so I think this essentially led to what I currently have, which is that I'm bringing that genetic expertise, but at the same time, I'm also bringing my expertise, which is to work with people who don't do genetics and to work with community members. And so now that's what I do. I kind of bridge both worlds, which I never thought was going to be possible doing genomics and working with communities. So yeah, for me, it really has been taking different opportunities and seeing where that takes me. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. My guest has been Dr. Bernos, who is an expert in the genetics of invasive species of fish. This has been a particularly fun episode for me to make because Dr. Bernos is probably the first person who actually contacted me off Twitter because she'd heard about the podcast I was making and wanted to help. And so we got together and made this episode after having a discussion on Twitter also known as X. So thank you very much for joining us today, and I hope you'll listen to the next episode. Thanks for listening to the BioAudio podcast. The BioAudio project was started to provide a free alternative to textbooks for students and educators, to provide a more inclusive resource, and one we can add new topics to at any time and modify. 
If you are a student and you have enjoyed this episode, send me a note on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Bat Underscore Girl or on Mastodon at Professor Bat Girl at ecoevo.social and follow me to hear when new episodes are posted. If you are a university educator and would like to use this content, please feel free and let me know you're making use of it. Ask your students to follow the podcast. If you'd like to suggest a new episode, and better yet, help make it, send a message on Twitter, Mastodon, or to bioaudio1 at gmail.com. I'm happy to make new content to fit other courses, and I'll prioritize a topic if you can help me record it.